You're listening to the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. In conversation with Jennifer Rouse, I've worked with Jennifer, I've known Jennifer for many, many years, and uh, it seems as if we've been working together on music for a very long time, but that's actually, in our long professional relationship, uh, a short amount of time and relatively recent, Um, particularly as Redfield Arts Audio has become front and center of everything in my creative life and and my work. Um, But um, we're doing music now, aren't we? And lots of it. We are. We are. Lots of it. (laughs) And uh, most of what we're going to be talking about in this little chat is um, doing music for audio drama. But um, let's just get the background out of the way because there's a story that you like to tell. I met Jennifer when I was a young man, and Jennifer was but a child. (laughs) Yeah, I was eight, I think. Um, My dad, well, both both of our parents were divorced, and my my mom and her dad. Yeah, yeah, and and so my dad and Mark's mom were seeing each other, so that's how we met originally. Um, But I. I think I remember coming around since I was about eight, and then the funny story uh, at well, some. I'm ahead. thinking about the Hitchcock. Yeah, movie. that's what, that's where I was going. I was doing some theater at Center Stage or something, yeah, so that something. kind of brackets what time period this was. And I, for some reason, I knew you were you loved Alfred Hitchcock, and I think I was in eighth grade, and I had to do a report on Hitchcock so I was like oh I'll see if Mark can help me and uh, because of course he would right (laughs) so it was a Sunday and I was over there with my dad and all ready to ask Mark some questions and he like I don't know if he was busy or what but I didn't get that much out of him at the time (laughs) I don't believe it I don't don't believe a word of it I don't think such a person exists right I didn't blow you off I love Alfred Hitchcock I could have talked to you for hours about that anyway I hope you did the paper or whatever it was and I hope I did because otherwise it's too late yep yep Um, but the funny thing about our respective parents is that there's a similarity in um, and you just did a podcast uh, that the the center of the story was about how your parents met and, mm-hmm. and it was through going to a, they, they meet and their first date is a, a Jimi Hendrix concert. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for you, it's music. Right. And, um, your dad had an interest in music. He did. Um, he couldn't play anything, but he managed a couple bands and, you know, he was always into music. I even remember when I got to know him, he, um, had this scheme. It was always um, coming up with things that he wanted to do. And he wanted to rent these uh, rooms and turn them into recording studios for bands. Mm -hmm. He did, actually. He he rented one, and he had a band that he was uh, managing for a little bit. They were a a Rush tribute band. 
that only, I think that only lasted maybe six months, something like that. That's funny. That's funny. And in my case, it was my parents met doing theater, uh, uh, in a in a play that my mother stage managed and my father was in. So, sort of, I guess, in the genes and in the blood and in the DNA and everything that comes together. I mean, it's kind of interesting. And because you, then you go on to have a serious interest in music, and you you go to study music at Towson University. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can remember back. Well, back in preschool sort of that's like my earliest memory of doing any kind of music with of course you're kind of forced to do it at that point um little plays and singing performances for parents but then in elementary school I can remember um not being able to wait because I could see all the like third fourth and fifth graders I think at third grade they started you off with like a a recorder flute that you could take home and then fourth grade you could take home they gave you little xylophones to learn how to play and then in fifth grade you got to pick your own instrument so I was like super excited about that even back then so when I was able to choose my own instrument I eventually settled on clarinet Um, I thought about maybe violin or flute, but my mom had played the clarinet when she was in school, so I thought maybe that would help, and it did. Um, I remember our first band concert in fifth grade. I had uh, pre-warned, it was going to be my mom and my grandmother was coming, and I had sort of pre-warned them. I was like, Mom, it sounds like a car crash, and it did, (laughs) but they they thought that was funny that I said that, but... um, after that, I was, you know, I was in the chorus and the band in middle school and high school, and I took uh, voice lessons. I went to uh, Peabody Prep, which is Johns Hopkins School of Music, um, for voice with a lady named Serafina. That she taught me Italian opera, which was a challenge for a thirteen-year-old, um, but you know, it's having to learn that style and in a different language but um that was that was fun and then I also took uh private clarinet lessons with a fellow named Chris Wolf who it was a great teacher he taught me uh or he was the uh first chair clarinet player for the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and he was also the assistant conductor um so that was in late high school that I started with him. Um, and then I played clarinet and took music theory classes in college to learn how to compose music. And then about, uh, I don't know, six or seven years after I graduated college, I was kind of missing it. So I took some more classes, some more music theory classes uh, to learn how to write better. And uh, I also took voice lessons at the time to be able to write my own songs. I'm curious too, because you're not, people look at your, they see your last name, Rouse. And if they know um, the name Rouse, they may have heard about the developer. Uh, Any relationship? whatsoever is there any money can he be producing <laughs> i wish i mean there, there is there is a distant relationship uh apparently there were three rouse brothers that came over here at some point 
And um, I think two of them stayed around the Baltimore and Maryland area, and then one went to Boston, I think, as far as I know. Um, so it's uh, somehow. And then you had a relationship I met through you, uh, a, a, a nice, you had a nice friendship with the late composer Christopher Rouse. Yes. Who. Uh, uh, composed a lot of symphonic uh, symphonies and um, we went to see something that I think that he had written or went to hear rather something that he had written that the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra played what is is there a family connection with with the late Christopher Rouse um distant cousins yeah. we figured you know it's right we never figured an exact so lineage. you so you go to Towson and was your concentration composition or what was your what was your music composition? Was it, was, it was performance at the time, and then, but I also took music theory classes, um, which was composition, so I, that's where I learned how to do that. So jump cut to then we're adults, and you're uh, modeling, and you are acting, and then jump cut another leap, and uh, you, and I, you and I end up producing a film uh, called uh, Chainsaw Sally, mm -hmm. uh, notoriously, um, that is one of the last independent films to get into the um, now defunct Hollywood video. And I, I remember we did very well <laughs> on Chainsaw Sally, but uh, the investors should be happy because Hollywood video bought a ton of the, the, the initial release and... Um, so we've known each other for a long time. We've worked with each other in, in different ways. We were in a Western together. One thing leads to another. And then I gravitate into this audio drama thing. And I'd been doing audio work on and off for years since the late 90s. And uh, a lot of stuff for other people. And I start to want to produce more on my own. And I, and I distinctly remember moments. And I think the moment I realized that, um, that you'll be the house composer, that you'll, be, uh, you'll, you'll partner with me on these. Um, because I just casually asked you, I think, one day about a kind of a genre of music, a kind of music that I wanted for something. And you just swiveled in your chair away from your console and basically said, I can compose anything you want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was like... Well, any style. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay. Uh, all right. You're in. And um, so we've been... Uh, now, as the listeners are listening to this, we you have just composed uh, 60 minutes of underscore for uh, an audiobook of Dickens' A Christmas Carol that I perform. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial of his approach. Bah, said Scrooge. Humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle. You don't mean that, I am Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then? In life I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you and what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Lord. Why, it's old Fezziwig. Bless his heart. It's Fezziwig alive again. Come in. Come in and know me better, man. 
am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley and, lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. And uh, that's out now, and that's that's wonderful. And you've you've been doing these these marvelous little things with our our first titles that have come out. And um, in the fall of 2019, um, a mutual friend of ours, a, a longtime friend of mine, Mark Wheatley, illustrator and writer, and comic book artist, uh, he had put together this. Um, Kickstarter fundraiser to raise the money to do a, a book, an illustrated book, of poetry, uh, the poetry of pulp. So it, and he called it Songs of Giants, the Poetry of Pulp. And it was a, a, a curated collection of poetry um, written by people you wouldn't expect to be writing poetry, but they were H.P. Lovecraft, um, the 20th century horror master, horror writer, Edgar Rice Burroughs, the creator of Tarzan, and John Carter of Mars, and um, Howard, Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan the Barbarian, and an eclectic mix of poetry. And Mark came to me and he said, um, it just seems to me that it would be great if there was an audiobook for this. And um, I, I was deeply complimented when we turned over the entire finalized, finished uh, album to him because it was part of the perks and rewards that his Kickstarter um, funders were going to get. Um, and Mark Wheatley was genuinely impressed and genuinely blown away. And for me, when you're working on something so fast and so intensely, and I'm trying to find the different colors and the readings and the voices for the poems, and you come up with a complete original score, a piece of music setting the tone and the atmosphere of each one individually. Songs of Giants, the poetry of pulp. Poetry by H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and Robert E. Howard. Music by Jennifer Rouse. Readings by Mark Redfield. The steeples are white in the wild moonlight, and the trees have a silver glare. Past the chimneys high, see the vampires fly, and the harpies of upper air that flutter and laugh and stare. I carved a woman out of marble when the walls of Athens echoed to my fame, and in the myrtle crown were shrined I stood at the bar, at the Spread Eagle Bar, a drinking a drink whilst I smoked a cigar. When in walks a gent that I ain't never see, and he lets out a bell. The dawn's at bay. The dead lay littered on our decks. Our masts were shot away. We beat them back with broken blades till crimson ran the tide. Death thundered in the cannon smoke when Richard Grenville died. We should have blown her hull apart and sunk beneath the main. The people saw upon his wrist the scars of the right. he had instead of toes 
and a beard adorned its throat. On a set of rustic reeds sweetly played this hybrid man, not cared I for earthly needs, for I knew this was Pan. For more great audio, visit redfieldartsaudio.com. Yeah, I think there were, what, 19? There were 19 poems or something, and... Um, you don't think about it when you're in the middle of it. You you just do it, and you kind of hope that it's good, and you know some feel good as you're doing it, and some you're not sure about. And then Mark was the first feedback. And it, I was taken aback because he was so genuinely bowled over by it. And uh, then I realized what you did, that for 19 poems, some very short, you know, uh, Lovecraft wrote a very, very short piece about Santa Claus and to some longer ones you know Howard and 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 Lovecraft also wrote some very long Lovecraftian type things um and I and I remember thinking back um it, it also encapsula encapsulated in some ways our working style I mean how did you approach how did you approach those poems because I'm going somewhere with this about our working method but how did you approach them well, I mean, each of the writers kind of had their own style themselves. Um, Lovecraft is sort of surreal. Um, Burroughs was was he was he the Western one? Yeah, was it, yeah all Burroughs, of the westerns were. Yeah, a lot of Burroughs. a lot of his were sort of western ish, and then uh, Howard was more like. Well, he does a lot of sword Warlock, sorcery. Yeah, yeah. So it was more like Viking type style. Um, so and a lot of drums in there, and yeah, a lot of very earthy kinds of sounds and things. So I kind of had that to start with, and then each poem, uh, like you said, some were longer than others, but since they were, you know, maybe three to seven minutes long mostly um they were all manageable little chunks that i could work with at a time in their in their own little genre if you will um so and and i would just base it on what they were talking about what the story was about and just kind of you know work at that you, i can't remember I, I i i gave you very few notes I don't remember major revisions on anything. And um, did you did you write and work on some of that before I recorded? In other words, did you read one of the poems and get an idea? Or did you start with the actual vocal? I did think, you start with the recording to see with the tone of where I was going? I think I had done some temp tracks where I recited the poem and then... Kind so you of, kind of knew where things were going to go. Yeah, for a few of them. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't because it didn't match you, what you were, your your tone of it. But you know, I a couple of them I did get um, out of the way beforehand and just kind of matched it up with your voice. But mostly, most of them were after the fact, after you recorded them. I was actually when we did. Um, Valdemar, which is a very loose adaptation of uh, an Edgar Allan, uh, Edgar Allan Poe story called The Facts in the Case of 
M. Valdemar, and it's about a about a man who is put under hypnosis at the point of death, and sort of death is arrested, and it's, he's frozen in time. And when the uh, when the hypnotism is taken off him, when he is uh, snapped out of it, um, it's uh, you know a punchline ending where um, he basically disintegrates into a puddle of goo on the bed. Um, I was frankly surprised at the amount of music that you did. In other words, it's a it's a short. Um, it runs about thirty minutes, I guess, like a lot of our things do. And in previous shorts that I've done, some of them were recorded live that people have listened to on the podcast that we've put out again. The soundtracks or the or, or the um, the soundscapes. They're, they're more like soundscapes, and, and some of these were done by uh, David Crandall when we did them and recorded them live. And so they, they become very amorphous and very dreamlike, and they're, they're, they're not true music the way we think of uh, a score to be. And then we did Valdemar together, and I thought you would do some of that and you were also designing the sound effects and so that was very specific uh, sound effects that had to be in there and I had some specific ideas about how to treat the moments because we're listening to them we can't do anything visual of course about hypnotism but then you did a wall-to-wall soundtrack and I love that and I didn't expect that and and I think it made it better um I just didn't think you were going to go a whole hog, and it it really kind of spoiled me because I think some of the pieces that we have coming up in the future deserve wall-to-wall sound, <clears throat> and um, other things I think we can be more sparing with. We can we can we can each each piece is going to be its own animal and want its own things, but with Valdemar, um, I think it really plussed it in a, in a big way. My name is Elmira Valdemar. Yes, that Valdemar. Married to one of the richest men on the planet. I had been a jazz singer, this is a fact, and was working my way into the better clubs, with the better bands, when I met Ernest Valdemar. Yes, he was old enough to be my grandfather. Was I a gold digger? Were the accusations, the slander that was leveled at me justified? That's for you to decide. It is now rendered necessary that I give the facts in the case of Mr. Ernest Valdemar, as far as I comprehend them myself. Yeah, I mean, most of these uh, projects that we do, it's like, I, it, it just happens at the time that I'm working on it. Um, so I sort of have an idea of the style that I want I want to go with, but then after I hear the dialogue cut together and sound effects, it just kind of flows, I guess. Um, with Valdemar, I, I wanted to emphasize certain things, and it just, uh, there's a lot of things happening in, in it, so I, I just felt that it needed the color of the music to go under it, to for support and 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 fullness um like you said there's some specific scenes like the carnival scene that's in it um that's a whole that was a whole 
environment creation with, you know, going through different, um, different little attractions that she's walking through and hearing the carnival barkers and it kind of cross fades to different things. But yeah, it just, it just sort of happened with, you know, creating a, a whole full score for it underneath. And then obviously being spoiled by having wall-to-wall music, I expressly asked for that for the audiobook of A Christmas Carol. Um, there are a couple of moments, I think, where silence is important or the illusion of silence in the audio design, mm-hmm. uh, you know, particularly with uh, the ghost of the future, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, that there is a quietness, a, 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 an, an uneasy quietness about death and the future and a blankness about it. How do you generally work on these audio dramas? Do you, because you're also the editor and, and sound designer, so that means you're really responsible for 50% of it. If what I'm doing on these is writing a script and uh, either performing or directing the other actors, and I give you some direction as to the pace and the rhythm of something, you're you're 50% of it. I mean, the thing that filmmakers, good filmmakers, I think, know about films and their favorite films are that uh, the soundtrack is 50% of the color and the emotion and the weight to support the images. Um, it is I true, and I believe this, as a Hitchcock being one of my favorite filmmakers, that a film should work First, you should be able to watch a good film without the sound. The visual, the images, Mm -hmm. should be able to tell you the story. Now, having said that, I made a film like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is basically a radio play with pictures. It's very talky. These, I'm trying to unlearn what I've tried to learn in writing screenplays, in writing audio plays, where it's all in your ear to create images in in your mind. Mm -hmm. And... Your music and sound design is 50% of that. It really does create so much. So how do you like to work? Um, do you like to start with the music or do you like to start with cutting the voices? How do you, how do, you do it? I usually, uh, if I have all the voices, I'll cut those together first. And then um, I'll put in sound effects and do the music last. Um, one thing you, you mentioned about uh, with a film and probably, you know, with the audio productions also, the the score is, or the music is 50%, but the audience should not perceive it as 50%. It's, it seems like it should always be under and just as a support and, and uh, emphasis for certain things if you know what I mean. I know exactly what you mean, and this is something that I want to play with in some of our future audio drama where the music, the, 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 word, the spoken word and the music can not alternate, but they can share, and sometimes there might be an emphasis on some music to carry something forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to play with that in certain ways because one of the things that I find fascinating that I... I'm trying to find different ways to do it is to portray action, physical action Mm -hmm. in audio drama. 
And I had this first problem with Sinbad where my experience with things Sinbad were Harryhausen movies where there's very little dialogue and there's wonderful visual effects uh, and action. There are sword fights, there are monsters. Um, how do we do this with the Westerns we're going to do? How do we do this with... Um, I mean, in writing the seance for the Houdini piece, I have things in my head that I will try to communicate with you and, and, and hopefully get your imagination ignited. But how do you do the, the end of the Houdini script, which is not out yet, we haven't even, uh, uh, we have a lot to, to do on it, uh, ends with a chase through Coney Island and the villain plummeting to his death from a great height off of a roller coaster. And it's it's kind of a cheat to just have um, a narrator tell you that, which is the easiest. And then he way. fell. And then he fell. <laughs> and then you know, sound effect. And right. It's the thing. But um, so we're going to find some, I think, some interesting ways to, and and then for um, that, it's like the the music tells the story with like the descending scale going down. You know, da 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 This is why I keep saying that I what I want to do, even for some of the straight straighter drama, and not so much the genre stuff, when. I think that there's room so in there is something that animators need to learn and I've often say that an animator is an actor and there are things that an animator uh, needs to learn a cartoonist does that is squash and stretch so it's not just a recreation of a naturalistic movement like if you understand what in animation rotoscoping is, it is basically tracing a filmed image of a human or a, or a movement of an object or a thing. So it becomes very naturalistic and very mm -hmm. locked into a kind of thing. Squash, squash and stretch is literally what a cartoon can do to give emphasis to movement mm -hmm. and great more and drama to it. In audio, I think the equivalent to that that we keep talking about in the last year is. Um, Two phrases, and I think of these as positive phrases, not negative things. One is the phrase is Mickey Mousing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you'll find that in musical scores, uh, like by the composer Paul Smith, who wrote a number of scores for Disney films. The Disney nature films, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And you'll find that, and Carl Stalling in the Warner Brothers pictures, there is um, a musical mm -hmm. Like the form. guy pulls his sword out and you hear the trumpets. Da, da, da. <laughs> exactly. So sometimes it's quite literally musical. Sometimes yeah. it's a little more, uh, a little more sound effects-y. But I think some of that can be under even naturalistic drama, audio mm -hmm. drama. Um, who's your favorite composer? Film composer. Film composer? Probably Bernard Herman, or however you want to pronounce it, Bernard Herman. I think his mother would have pronounced it Bernard Herman. Yeah. And um, I love his scores as well. And uh, one of the things that Jennifer is going to be doing in future review podcasts are little audio essays talking about her favorite composers. And I, I think we'll be hearing her thoughts on Bernard Herman in the near future. I'm really excited about the future of what we're working on. Our big, big project um, is the audio biography of Edgar Allan Poe called Alone, the Life of Poe. And 
um, there I'm really throwing you a challenge. And uh, from everything we've talked about and the work you've done so far and what we've been listening to, I keep telling the public there's going to be a mix of, you know, folk music and, you know, the, the music of the period, but truly the underscore to, to bring the world to life is flavors of, of that, of period music, but I also think your own sound, um, trying to find something that is... You know, has its root, roots maybe in in Irish music, and but is very contemporary sounding and very mm -hmm. very kind of timeless in a way. Not necessarily symphonic, classical right. in a in a in the best sense of the word in a John Williams sort of way, but something that that really helps us tell the story of all of these stages of Poe's life, the happy stages and of course the tragic, uh, horrible stages that. You know, his brief, he went through briefly in his brief life. Um, I hope that's not daunting you anymore. I hope that's not scaring you anymore. But um, no, I mean, I, I sort of have an idea of trying to, of course, mix um, sort of a Celtic sound with um, classical uh, and even a touch of electronic and rock music at points maybe just a tad and just until, to play with it and 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 one of the things that i i'm so looking forward to is that we'll be producing a soundtrack album mm -hmm. separate in addition to the the you know to pull out of what you're doing so it may sound alarming to certain people. What do you mean rock music? Where are you going with this? No, no, I mean nothing. Because what just, does that mean to the listener? Right, right? You know, right. that could mean anything. That could mean from whatever rock, from, that could mean anything to mm -hmm. anybody. Not necessarily rock, just more like maybe a electric guitar here and there or you don't something. Have to yeah, you don't have to explain it. Just, it. I mean, it'll just happen as it goes. And, 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 and I think it'll be great. I mean, and I, and I love throwing you these challenges. Um, what a, a few a few times I have asked Jennifer to create a theme, and in sometimes I've done that so that it helps me write. Uh, interestingly enough, um, in our future is adapting, doing a series of uh, audio adventures of my vampire hunter uh, Bertram Wells, uh, and doing Vampire Hunters Incorporated. And so I I ask, can you do his theme song? Can you do the Vampire Hunters theme song? And um, the conversation inevitably is, you know, well, what do you have in mind and what kind of music and that kind of thing. And I kept going back to jazz, but a specific era, jazz and funk of the early 70s. I wanted something as gritty and real as Times Square in the early 70s in, in New York City. It, they all take place, all the stories take place in New York City. They're contemporary, but I want that New York City that I remember. And um, so you, you did a really kind of a wonderful driving thing there. And, and um, now we're talking about Sherlock Holmes uh, and doing some original Sherlock Holmes things. So I'm throwing you in yet another different direction. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know, is, is, is this good? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it helps me expand with things, you know.
Any kind of different genre, different thing you ask of me helps me expand my own range. The Bertram Wells Vampire Hunters Incorporated theme was very Quincy Jones, 70s police movie style. Um, The Sherlock Holmes theme is a whole different animal. Uh, different. It's I'm not, very lush, very romantic. Yeah, it's very yeah. energetic adventure because of, of of how I would like to portray Holmes in these. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, I also threw the first Holmes thing as a Christmas story, and so that's kind of right. Using Twelve Days of Christmas, kind of right. Is kind of a not a cheat, but that's so well known that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, London at Christmas time. I had called upon my friend Sherlock Holmes upon the second morning after Christmas with the intention of wishing him the compliments of the season. My cab had just arrived at Baker Street, and as I stepped down, I saw that my landlady, from the days when I'd shared rooms with Holmes, was alighting from hers. A happy Christmas, Mrs. Hudson. Oh, Dr. Watson. May I help you with those packages? Yes, thank you. Very kind. There you are. Much obliged. Returning from your sisters, I see. Oh, yes. Very keen you are. (laughs) How'd you know? It doesn't take a Sherlock Holmes to deduce that. Two days after Christmas, you returned to Baker Street laden with bundles and packages that you've been visiting your sister and your nieces. Did you have a lovely holiday? Oh, it's so good to get out of the city. So what's your favorite band? I want to change the oh subject gosh. and talk about something else. Um, what are your favorite bands? I mean, um, what do you like listening to when you're not composing this stuff for Redfield Arts Audio? I listen to a whole bunch of different kind of music. Um, everything from classic rock to hip hop to, you know, country. So it depends on what kind of mood I'm in. But I tend to um, lean towards classic rock as my favorite. Um, you know, everything from Led Zeppelin to Fleetwood Mac. Elton John is a favorite. There's a little. There's El- a little Elton, Elton John, John behind you. bobble. No, he's not a bobble. He's a Funko Pop. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have your Elton John totem yep, yep. To, to get some good magic going up in this studio. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm a huge Elton John and Bertie Taupin fan, um, especially their earlier works. And it just amazes me that um, the, the different... It's like each album that they did had you know there was like three or four different genres on one album it went from sort of you know the ballad to something that was a western type feel in some cases and then went to more of a heavier rock feel so it's just incredible and plus the um the stories that they could tell it was like little audio dramas kind of because it was almost like characters within the stories of Bernie's uh, lyrics and it was it's just so lush and rich and it was amazing that what they came up with you know on 
Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, uh, you know, it starts off with this incredible uh, funeral for a friend, Love Lies Bleeding, which is like a whole epic thing within itself of different feelings and, you know, tempos and... So, um, it's about high time then that what that we produce an album. Yes. And, um, you know, the good thing is, is that uh, I hope you're enjoying you know, creating the music for these things and acting in these things because this is something I think that um, we can do for a long time. And, and, I, and I feel pretty good mm-hmm. about what we've done so far um, and uh, really excited about some of the challenges coming up because it is a range of original things or period things or um, genres that demand certain things from the listener i think they expect things and i think if we can give them that and and then kind of plus it or even kind of switch out on them and surprise them you know um a vampire store vampire stories that take place in new york but have that really great kind of quincy jones Mm -hmm. vibe to it you know the the children's things that we're doing um very expressive, and, and I like the music that you've done so far on The Princess That Could Not Dance, or That Would Not Dance. I can't get the could title not. straight. Could not or wouldn't. <laughs> I don't she, want to. She no. couldn't She, couldn't she dance. wanted to, but she couldn't. Yeah. So. The Princess Who Could Not Dance by Ruth Plumley Thompson. Narrated by Mark Redfield and Mackenzie Mentor. <laughs> once, oh once, dears and ducks, there was a beautiful princess who could not dance. Think of it. All the dancing masters in the kingdom and all the kingdoms for miles round could do nothing with her. They came singly and doubly and then all together and counted one, two, one, two, three, and twirled and bobbed and bowed and stamped and swayed in and out and swirled round like tops and the court musicians... Um, I think it's safe to say that all of the children's stuff that we're doing are going to have full scores. The audiobooks, not so much. Um, I wouldn't want to dare push you to score the audiobook for um, The Wizard of Oz. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's so hard to get the MGM musical out of one's head. Um, but there's still plenty to do, and, right. and I'm very excited to be uh, plunging on as we really are getting this company on its feet in the coming in 2020. Yes, I'm so looking forward to everything we have coming up. 